begin every task with the end in mind. And if I can always think of, okay, this is where I want to go. How do we get there? Whether it's something small or whether it's something huge, that's my outlook on, on everything that I do. And, and I attribute a lot of that back to that book. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Rhett, welcome to the show. Matt, what's going on, man? Happy to, uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Favorite ice cream? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a New England guy, so I'm a Ben and Jerry's guy and uh, grew up Ben and Jerry's and, and Cherry Garcia puts me in a, in a good place. And, you know, coming down here, there's not a lot of Ben and Jerry's. It's a lot of Jenny's ice cream, which I, I just haven't been able to get on board of the boutique, you know, high luxury style ice cream. So, uh, you know, I got to go to Publix or, or go to Walmart and, and find my good old Cherry Garcia. So I'm glad you said that. My fiance is a huge Jenny's fan and I haven't broken the news yet because, you know, I don't want to have too much distress in the household that I'm just not that big of a Jenny's fan. <laughs> However, Jenny's did come out with a Ted Lasso ice cream last year to kick off like the new season. And, you know, yeah. I, was, I support that. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to try that. I haven't tried that. You know, Jenny's, they have a, a knack for every time I start to like a, a flavor, they just say uh, seasonal and uh, they yank it. <laughs> so every time I'm trying to get into Jenny's, they just pull it from the shelves. Now in New England, are there like Ben and Jerry's stores or do you just still have to go get it from like uh, the grocery store or whatever? You know, they're a brick and mortar, so wow. they, they're in every store, they're in every gas station, every convenience store has Ben and Jerry's, but there's brick and mortar too that you can go to and actually just get scoops of the ice cream. Interesting, interesting. We are yeah. looking to make a trip up that way, like Maine and Vermont and all that when the leaves turn next year, so uh, mm -hmm. I'll have to put it on the list. Definitely, it's the best time to go to. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Well, now, Matt, I, um, I run a consulting company. Um, I am a big-time investor. Um, I, de I develop property, develop um, townhomes and Airbnbs and apartment buildings and condos, um, as well as, as uh, help a lot of people build out portfolios, rental portfolios. And I work with clients all over the world, and we help them get set up in, in markets all across the United States and, and help them cash flow and uh, get them to where they need to go. Awesome. Well, I know through doing some research, you didn't start your career in real estate. So take us back. Where did your real estate journey begin? How'd you get involved? Yeah. So, you know, as a kid, Matt, my, uh, my dad owned a construction company. Um, and when you grow up around renovations and real estate, it just becomes a part of everything that I did. I, I never, even playing baseball, I always knew that eventually when my career was over, real estate would be something I would get into. Um, and as a young guy, I'd start partnering on flips uh, with my dad's company and, and owning very, very small uh, pieces of things. And then was able to turn that into bigger pieces and bigger pieces and bigger pieces um, until I could really do it on my own, uh, learn the way, learn the path. And then uh, I, I came down to Nashville, where, where you and I both live now. And um, I, I was playing baseball. My time was consumed. I didn't have time to search out properties to flip and look at comps in the areas. And I had a lot of stuff going on. So 
I wanted to get more into long-term, more passive uh, investments where I could play, be playing baseball every day and I don't have to worry about coordinating with contractors and making sure that comps come in and making sure that my homes are, are reselling quickly, um, which is then when I realized that uh, having large uh, single-family portfolios and multifamily portfolios that create passive income was, was where I wanted to be. So I'm always interested when I hear that someone has a entrepreneur parent in their life and kind of how that shaped them. My dad was an entrepreneur growing up. He owned a slew of businesses. Some did very well and some didn't do as well. But I remember the times when I was spending with him in the truck, going to those different locations and all that kind of stuff. Take us back to like a, a young Rhett when you're sitting with your dad going through these constructions. Were you actually like on site swinging hammers? What were you actually doing in the business? You know, more so walking through the jobs, understanding what materials need to go in, why, uh, understanding scheduling, understanding budgets, understanding um, how to run subs and, and how to uh, work with contractors successfully, understanding uh, how to work with real estate agents. And getting their input because they're the ones that have an understanding of what's selling right now, right? When we look at construction as investors, we make our money by buying the right property. A lot of investors lose money by trying to be too involved in the actual uh, rehab. They think it's HGTV. They saw this on the flipping show. They saw this, you know, Tarek El Musa putting this in a house. That's how you lose money. So learning how to team up with real estate agents in the area who have an understanding of, hey, this is hot right now. People want this color home at this price point. Then it allowed me to say, okay, these are the partners that I need to bring on board to be successful no matter where I do this. Um, and, and that really helped me and, and I still do that today. Do you remember? Um, so first of all, I completely agree. If you saw me swing a hammer, you'd never know if I was left-handed or right-handed. Like I'm <laughs> not handy at all. Um, and I've done flips and burrs and things like that, but I am not handy at all. But uh, do you remember loving it when you were kind of at a young kid or was it just something that your dad did and there was an affinity to kind of following in your dad's footsteps? Talk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, I think it's a combination of both. I, I have a really close relationship with both my parents. So anything that they do, you know, I would love to follow in their footsteps with everything. But, um, you know, as a young guy, too, what you realize is when you're in that life and you are in a real estate life, nobody else your age is, yeah. or at least when I was that age. So it was something different that I knew a lot about that nobody else knew much about. So then people start asking you, hey, what is this? What is this? And then you, before you know it, you become an expert on something that, you know, nobody else knows anything about. And, and I liked that because I could teach I, naturally. I love to coach. I love to teach. As an athlete, I've been around great coaches in my life and really good teachers. So I enjoy teaching others and, and helping them get to where they want to go. And I think it all kind of started around that time by, by working around my dad. Yeah. And I uh, completely agree that it kind of puts you a step ahead of your peer group because my dad was entrepreneur through and through. 
Um, he owned a def- number of different businesses, but kind of what he does now is a construction business. He puts up steel erection for Dollar General, self-storage, all that kind of stuff. But he never really understood how to go acquire the properties, just how to get the job, uh, put the construction up, and then kind of move on to the next one. And I think he would even tell you to this day, like, hey, I really missed the boat if I would have just been taking pieces of these properties for 30, 50 years that I've been doing this then my life would have been tremendously different. Instead, I was kind of getting in and out. So it does put you at an advantage knowing that stuff as a, as a young kid. Yeah. And Matt, you know, this is probably way ahead of when you're going to, when we're going to talk about this, but that's a really good point. And I talk about that all the time with my clients, because when you're doing flips, you work your butt off three, four months, you sell that property and it's gone. Yep. You make your 20, your 50, your 80, whatever it is, $1,000, and you spend it. And you have nothing to show for that all that time you put in, all that research, all that work, all that sweat equity, all the phone calls. You have nothing. Yeah. You might have 25 grand, 40 grand. And that's why there's so much more that we get out of the buy and hold. Just not even getting into the tax implications of, of property flipping. And Matt, you've, been, you've done yep. that for a long time. But understanding when you do do those burrs, now you're pulling that money out of the property, just like a flip. You're keeping the home. You have the underlying asset and you still get capital out tax-free. It's just such a great way to do things and you actually can hold that asset and, and let it appreciate over that 20, 30, 40-year period. Yeah, I always say that like when you're in this space, you start realizing that most people start off wholesaling properties. Then they're like, wait a yeah. minute, I can get a bigger fee if I flip these properties. And then they start mm-hmm. flipping them. And then they're like, wait a minute, Rhett's the one buying this and holding it. And 30 years later, it's worth $2 million. I should just be right. holding these. And then ultimately they get into holding them. And then their journey kind of goes into, they go single family or they get into kind of the bigger apartment buildings and commercial real estate, whereas I spend most of my time today. Um, yeah. So talk us a little bit about your portfolio. What does your portfolio look like today? And then I want to get into kind of your coaching business because you have some unique knowledge that we haven't had on the show yet. Yeah. So Matt, you know, as an investor, the, the people ask me all the time, say, Rhett, how big is your portfolio? And when you do developments and you have single family units and you have multifamily units, you're always acquiring and you're always selling. So my portfolio always fluctuates. Right now, I'm building about 380 units in Nashville of new construction. Wow. Um, the combination of townhomes, Airbnbs, condos, apartments. Um, a lot of those are uh, workforce housing. Some of them, a very small percentage of them are subsidized and, and Section 8. Um, and then a lot of them are high luxury. So, it, you know, it's a combination of everything. And I also like to always hold between 100 and 200 single family units, most of which are Section 8. Um, so regardless of what my portfolio fluctuates to, I always keep it uh, a, a very high percentage of it in Section 8 because that's what I rely on. When, when things are bad, that's where I know every month, okay, I'm going to make X amount of dollars with my Section 8 portfolio. Um, just recently, I started expanding into more workforce as the economy's changed. And, and you know, the bigger projects you do, you are directly affected by rates. You're directly affected by things that you can't control. So outside of, of uh, some, some things I've done recently in the workforce uh, section of, of the market, I try to predominantly stick to the two poles, I call them. Um, 
very, very low income and very, very high income. Because when things go off the rails and, and there are things in the economy that happen, those are the two areas, the two socioeconomic groups that are affected the least. Everybody in the middle gets crushed. The people that struggle to make ends meet, they get crushed. The people that have a lot of wealth and have a lot of money, it doesn't matter that the cost of eggs went up $3 or the cost of milk is up 50%. And the people who are, are, are not making any money and who live in subsidized housing and who's, the government pays their rent and they have uh, EBT for food, they're not affected as much either. So when it comes to safety and mitigating risk, those are definitely the, the, the places where I like to park most of my money. Yeah, a couple of things I want to say there is, first of all, you're a much bigger deal than uh, my profile and research uh, led me to believe. So I'm bringing some Cherry Garcia over later. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about some of this stuff. But uh, I, I completely agree with you on the polls. So we we own a lot of Class A uh, luxury apartments, new builds, those sorts of things. And the real reason is you're right. Like if somebody's paying $4,000 a month in rent, if uh, inflation happens or whatever, chances are that's not going to really affect that demographic. However... On the lower end of the side, we also have affordable housing in our mobile home parks and our mobile home park fund. Yep. Like we own mobile home parks all throughout the Southeast. So most of that demographic is not going to uh, change uh, because they do kind of struggle a little bit. In fact, more people are moving down towards that uh, part of the demographic right now. So it's actually helping our demand. Um, but you mentioned Section 8. So Section 8 might be a new term for some of our listeners. Can you first off define what is Section 8? And then I've got a couple questions I kind of want to run through. Yeah. So Matt, Section 8 is the most misunderstood niche of real estate in existence, in my opinion. So I've been doing Section 8 for about 12 years. I started doing it when I moved down to Nashville in 2012. And it is without question the most uh, negatively stigmatized real estate investment that you can possibly get into. Um, there's two kinds of, of government subsidies when it comes to low income. And I'm not going to talk about Medicare housing, Medicaid housing, veterans housing. I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff. Just when it comes to low income subsidized housing, you have uh, city housing authorities and public housing. And then you have Section 8. Public housing is when you're driving down the street and you look off to your right and you see hundreds and hundreds of units, all in multifamily, um, and, and you have these high rises. Like what I uh, always refer it to is when you're driving through New York City and you're driving through the Bronx and you look and you see these big towers of, uh, of subsidized housing. That's a housing project. That's owned by the city or local county. Section 8 is owned by the, by the private sector. So those are single family homes owned by investors who are then renting them back out to the government, uh, to a tenant that holds a voucher that basically says, hey, the government's giving me $1,000 a month. I can use this. Would you accept it for your unit? And then as a private sector investor, just like you and I, we can say yes or we can say no. And over the last decade and plus, I've said yes a lot of times to that voucher. Um, and you know, section eight has for me, because it's funded by the government, when they need more money, they just print more. When things are bad, you get paid. When the government gets shut down, you get paid. When there's COVID or pandemics or recessions, you get paid. You don't have to worry about anything. Um, and 
the program itself, there are so many people, Matt, who are trying to get on to Section 8 because they can't afford how expensive the United States has become. So you have these wait lists of people who are dying to get into the program. You have a program that's stigmatized to where private sector investors, they don't want to do it because they don't know anything about it. So the demand for these units is exorbitant and the supply is minuscule. And you know, as a capitalist, that's where you make money in situations like that. Yep. So um, a lot of different things that I want to tackle there. And first, I'll start off this conversation by I've owned Section 8 in the past. I don't have anything today, but I have owned it in the past. So um, I have bought homes that were already in the Section 8 program. So I'm a little ignorant on kind of that side. But I will say it was the best units that I think I've ever had because the the money shows up on the fifth of the month every single month without any hesitation or require or, or chasing down somebody. So first of all, I, I think your point is right around there's government housing and then there's government subsidized housing. Government housing is like the projects that you see and the big towers that you mentioned, things like that. We are not talking about that. We are talking about individual homes, or at least I, I don't know if apartment complexes qualify, but individual homes that you then say, hey, government, I will take a lower income resident if you pay for their rent. And that's that's essentially what we're looking for. So first question would be, how do you get a home that's approved by Section 8 to put in this program? That's a great question, Matt. So this is a huge misconception as well. And you could ask me questions all day long till you're blue in the face. And I could tell you that every single one of them, there's a misconception that surrounds it. So any home can be a Section 8 rental. It doesn't matter if you pay $1,000 for it or $10 million for it. Any home can be a Section 8 rental. And all you need is to accept a Section 8 tenant, and it can become a Section 8 rental. In order to get it into the program, the unit has to be passed by a Section 8 inspector. Section 8 inspectors, they work directly for the local housing authorities who report directly to the federal government. So each local housing authority, they get all their money from, from the Fed, who the Fed gets their money from Congress. So it goes Congress to the Fed, uh, to the local housing authority, to your pocket. So I come to you, Matt, and, and you have a rental property that you just put up. Here in Nashville, you put it up for 2000 a month. I come to you and I said, Mr. Matt, here is my voucher. I have a voucher for 2000 a month. Will you accept it? You say yes. You take it. You make a phone call to that tenant's um, caseworker. Every tenant has a caseworker that helps them find property and, and runs all their paperwork. The, the caseworker says, yep, okay, this works 2000 a month. That's what their voucher's for. They send an inspector out to the house. The inspector goes through it with a, uh, a list of items that the house needs to have. So every house, in order to rent it back to the government, it has to have uh, a list of specifications that are allowed by the government. So you can't just rent, get a piece of junk and rent it out. you got to make it nice. It has to be safe, and it has to be up to the standards of, of Section 8. Um, they'll inspect it. If it passes, you get the green light, your tenant signs the lease, and you start getting paid. So let's start with the standards. I know when I was going through this process, I think it's a yearly inspection you have to go through. Is that correct? Normally, yes. Okay. Um, and I remember specifically, it was smoke alarms have to be working, windows in every room, um, a two two exit home, like there has to be at a front and a back. So like basic safety concerns that you would think are basic, but if you start buying houses in the 1920s, they're 
they uh, might be missing some of those things. What are some of the other restrictions that would um, maybe disqualify a house from being in the program? So Matt, 12 years ago when I started getting into this, inspectors would come to the houses and they would look around like this (laughs) and they'd say, check. Now you wouldn't believe how many things have been added to that list. Making sure that the right traps are under the sink, making sure that the right locks are on the doors, not any normal locks, making sure the right locks are on the doors, making sure that government approved locks are on the windows, making sure that if you have a gas water heater, it is fully surrounded and not in, uh, in the open. Um, making sure that vanities are a certain height, making sure windows are a certain height off the floor. So what Section 8 has, has done is, in essence, they take new building codes every year and they go and they circle what they want to add to the list. Um, and then when they add that to the list, it, it never comes off. So those Section 8 lists have gotten 50% bigger since I started this. And, you know, people call me and they complain. They say, Rhett, you know, uh, we're now we have to do this, this and this. And the reality is, look, the home should be like that. Right. If you were buying a home, you'd want it to be safe. You'd want to feel feel good in there. You don't want to expose your children to unvented uh, space heaters and unvented water heaters. You want to make sure that it's safe for, for them. And part of my philosophy, Matt, in doing Section 8 is we take care of the tenant. If we can take care of that human being in that unit, I promise you we'll make more money. The people that treat that person like crap, they don't make nearly as much money as we do. When we put good things in the unit, when we take care of our tenants, when they file for maintenance requests, we take care of them. We put good stuff in there. We make it a home. And when we do that, how do we get repaid? They don't leave. They treat the house great. And we never have to turn the units over. So we try to create a unit that people are going to be proud of and that people take pride in. So they treat it the right way. And over the long term, it cuts down on, on turnover, which cuts into our profits. And it also, you know, uh, when that tenant does end up leaving, hopefully 20, 30 years from now, there's not a lot of work that needs to be done when they leave. Yeah. I mean, treat your tenants like humans is probably the best general rule of thumb that you can abide by if you're getting into this business. Like uh, it's just because it, you lose money on the turnover basically in single family. If you can yes. not turn over a property, meaning a resident moving out and a res- new resident moving in, then chances are you're going to be very profitable in this business. It's when tenants turn over that I notice there's a lot of hassle. Without question, you're hundred percent right. Um, so let's talk about the tenants themselves. So um, you mentioned there's caseworkers who qualifies to be in this program to have a voucher. And then um, let's talk, talk through the, the tenant themselves. Yeah. So when tenants are in a position in their life where they're not making ends meet and they need assistance, they file uh, for Section 8. Now, Basically, they fill out all of all of the necessary questions that are required. How much money do you make? How many dependents do you have? Do you have any uh, medical issues? Can you work? If you do work, how much money do you make? Um, are your, do you have any disabled children? They go down through the entire list and they're able to say, okay, yes, you qualify for government assistance or you don't qualify for government assistance. And there's a waiting list that depending on what market you're in, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people who are dying for assistance. And the stigma is, yeah, those people, they just don't work because they don't have to. So they don't want to they don't want to work. Why work when you're getting a free check from the government? 
what I found, Matt, I've, I've been in Section 8 up to my neck for over a decade. That is not the case. And if it is the case, it's an outlier. A lot of the people that we see are hurting. They need help. And a lot of us, you know, we're very fortunate. We're coming on this channel talking about the tens of millions of dollars that we own in real estate. You know, we don't, we're not affected as much by what a lot of people go through every single day. And I'm extremely sensitive to it because I've been in those neighborhoods. I've sat in people's kitchens. I've gone uh, to events and, and to, to fundraisers and, and, and to these uh, kitchens where people eat because they're just struggling. They're doing everything they can. They have kids. They, they, they're in areas where it's extremely hard to get out of the poverty cycle and they just need help. And there's so many people who are on that wait list that are so, so thankful when you do put them in a unit and they can't pay for it. So how do they repay you? They treat it nice. They stay in there for a long time and they're extremely thankful. Yeah, I think I remember two of the qualifications where you couldn't have a felony on your record and you couldn't have any drug charges, if I remember correctly. Is that – are both of those correct? They are correct, yes. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions to kind of uh, steal some of your talk phrase here is that you know when you think about the quality of tenant you're going to get in this type of a program, you tend to automatically think the worst situation. What I can tell you is you're absolutely right. When you have tens and thousands of people that are uh, in line waiting to get in the program, they know if they get in trouble, if they beat their spouse, if they get caught with drugs, all those sorts of things, then they get kicked out of the program. And getting kicked out of the program means now you live in downtown Nashville and you can only afford $500 of rent and rent is $2,500. So now what do you do? So I tend to find, yes, there are going to be bad apples in every bunch, but most folks that I've interacted with in this, uh, this program, when I've had the rentals, were always doing things too par because they knew they didn't want to get kicked out of the program. Matt, I'll tell you what, I have been a part of and owned a lot of properties and, and been a part of a lot of property acquisitions over the last decade well into the thousands, I have had 10 times the problems with cash tenants than I have with Section 8. I mean, you're talking about lawsuits, you're talking about destroying units, you're talking about people stealing stuff, non-payment, you name it, I've been through absolutely everything from evictions to uh, arrests. A absolutely, you, you throw the gamut, I, I've been through it. With Section 8, no, because there's recourse, right? If you're renting these units to cash tenants, what can you go after? If you go after the security deposit, okay, fine. Other than that, you're going after their credit, and the odds are if they're going to do something to you anyway, they don't care about their credit. So they don't care. With Section 8, this is all they have. In some instances, to put a roof over their kid's head, they need that voucher. So for us, there's significant recourse. Almost too much, believe it or not, to the point where I have gone to look at houses to buy and I've walked into to situations where I said, oh my goodness, how are you living in a home like this? Is the landlord not taking care of everything? I mean, houses with no running water, no electricity. And the tenants say to me, well, we're afraid of the landlord. We don't want them to come after our voucher if we complain. You know, and, and I, I remember seeing things years and years ago when I first got into this that I said, I, I got to create units that are different than everybody else. I have to get a, I have to help get people out of these units to the point where 
it's costing me money because I'm like, you know what? I don't care. Move into my house right now. Pay what you're paying, even if it's $300 under what I can get for it. Just move in. I have to help you get out of this situation. Yeah, I can also attest to the uh, folks that are not in the Section 8 program typically tend to treat the property a little bit different and uh, be more high maintenance. And I'm looking at you, Karen, when I'm having that conversation. So. <laughs> uh, well, so I want to shift this now. So you've got a huge portfolio in Section 8. You've got some bread and butter there, but you also do uh, development that you kind of hinted at at the beginning of the show. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, um, how did you get into the development space? And then ultimately, we talked about the barbell strategy of having both sides of the um, the end of the spectrum on the income standpoint. But why did you get into yeah. this and not you know, triple, quadruple down on the Section 8 stuff. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you would like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Well, you know, Matt, I always am trying to build. I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to do new things. Um, it got to a point for me where I said, okay, I have a couple hundred units. I, I want to move into something bigger. I, I want the numbers. I want to start adding zeros. And now it gets to a point when you have a ton of Section 8 units, you can take more risk. You can get into things that, that are different, that you can then take on things that higher risk, higher reward, which is developments all day long. Um, so living in Nashville, I'm seeing projects go up around me left and right. And I wanted to get in on some of that stuff. So I started being, uh, you know, small LP learning, learning the ropes. Hey, give me X amount of dollars for 10% or 20%. And then you wait two years and then you get the payment, but I can go to it. I can see it being built. I can see the progress. I can learn and understand, okay, this is how the interest rate market uh, directly correlates to a cap rate that I can then sell the development for, or this is how the, the rates are going to directly affect what kind of construction loan we can and can't get and what the costs have to be before and after. And I fell in love with the process of putting a deal together and going and finding the land and getting in front of zoning and, and getting zoning changed and getting with builders and getting architecture and engineering plans done and seeing what we can and can't do. And then of course, doing the project. Uh, getting it up from the ground up and actually getting people in there. And what I realized too was, you know, people talk about taxes all the time. And doing a burr and doing a flip, right? We touched on that at the beginning. And doing a flip, you're working on a project for, for a couple months and you get it up to where it needs to be. You sell it, you make a nice chunk of money and you move on. Well, developments, it's the same thing. Only the chunk of money is a lot bigger. But the time is even more. So now instead of three months, it's three years. Instead of making 80000 it's $8 million, And then you sell it. And then you're like, well, I just worked three years. Yeah, we made a, bu a bunch of money. But now I, I just sold 40 houses. Now they're not in my portfolio anymore. Versus building the portfolio, 
having it finished, leasing it up, doing a burr, taking all our money out, taking it back now, zero tax because it's leveraged, it's debt, so we don't get taxed on it. And now I can reap the benefits of it for the next 10 years. And now instead of selling it and making 8 million, I can wait and hold it for 20 years and sell it for 30 million. Yep. Right. So that is really what I love doing now. And, and, um, you understand too, cause you do this, Matt, but it takes so long for these projects to come together and it takes so long for them to get built and get leased up that the last thing I want to do now is sell these things once yeah. they're finished. Yeah. I was going to ask, how do you, uh, it's cause, so I've never done any development. Um, we typically, we kind of shy away from it in our portfolio, but how do you stay focused for three to five years, kind of building these things, getting the land, getting the permit, getting it leased up, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Matt. And you know, the, the, for me, all of the, the strenuous activity, all of the stress, all of the, um, real, uh, mental part of this and crunching of the numbers takes place in the six months prior to, to sending the money for a deal and closing on the land and, and, and funding a construction loan. So for me, that six months prior is where I put in all my time and all my due diligence. Once we're good, we close on that land and that first draw is given to the construction company or the builders. Yep. It's on them. Yep. So I drive by, you know, I look at these things twice a, twice a week, maybe three times a week, maybe, but usually not. Um, but I trust them. The, a lot of these builders I've worked with for, for a long time and, and I trust them. And, and a lot of times we make them equity partners. So it's on them. I don't really like the model of, uh, they get a fee regardless. They make their million, two million. I don't like that. I like putting them, give them skin in the game. So instead of making a million, they can make four, they can make three, right? But you got to do a good job on the, on the work. And if we're doing a buy and hold, they can't just create some crappy product and sell it and then have it fall apart in 12 months because we're going to hold their feet to the fire when that unit gets turned for the third time and two years in if things are falling apart. So yep. the build quality is better when you do it that way, and it gives them the ability to have skin in the game, which usually creates a, a much better product. I love it. I love it. Well, Rhett, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the four yeah. toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? You know, uh, one of my favorite books is, is how to, uh, win friends and influence people. Um, and I think, I, I think I said that right. I might've swapped. Yeah, yeah, that's but right. I, I, I've read it a, a handful of times. And when I feel like things aren't going well in my business or things aren't going well, uh, with developments or things aren't going well with personal relationships, I revert back to that book because I remember reading that book in college and, and I had a teacher uh, Professor Birdsong at Vanderbilt. And she made us read that book. And I remember, you know, this is just another book that we'll read and then I'll throw into the drawer afterwards and I'll never look at. Well, fast forward 12 years later and it's sitting, uh, you know, on the corner table in my office because I looked through it. You, you could go through that book and you would see dozens of notes, every single page, just how do I create relationships with tons of people, maintain those relationships Get them to where they need to go, keep them fired up and have an understanding of, hey, here's the goal. How do we get there? Um, and one of the biggest parts in that of that book is, is, and this is how I live my life, but begin every task with the end in mind. And if I can always think of, okay, this is where I want to go. How do we get there? Whether it's something small or whether it's something huge, 
that's my outlook on, on everything that I do. And, and I attribute a lot of that back to that book. Yeah. And I think more importantly to that, it's, it's really around clarity. Like if you start with the end in mind, you're very clear on what you want to accomplish. And then you can start saying no to the things that don't align with that. 100%. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, I, I've gotten a lot of really good advice and I think that the best advice uh, that I've ever gotten was, um, criticism is a compliment and being a, a professional athlete for six years, being a, a top collegiate athlete for three years and, 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 and being an athlete all throughout my life, a lot of people, they take criticism negatively. Me, I take it as a compliment. I think, look, if this person has enough time to criticize me and tell me, hey, this is what I need to do better, or you're doing a crappy job at this, they care. And I take that criticism and I say, okay, let's do it better. And in business, I mean, the sky's the limit, right? When you're talking sports, you can only do what your body allows you to do. People criticize you. Oh, he's not that big. He's not that strong. Okay, I can get in the weight room. I can't grow anymore. But, you know, I, I can push my body to the limits. And, and if someone says, oh, you know, he, he doesn't throw hard enough. I can throw as hard as I, as I can. But at one point, I'm going to top out, right? In business, when you get into the business world, you can keep going. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, I can find ways to create more and more and more and more based on you know, th there's no ceiling. So whether it's in business, my personal life, uh, I love criticism because it opens my eyes and, and I don't shy away from it. You, you know, what can I do better? Tell me how I can do a better job uh, in, in growing my business, in growing my portfolio, in growing developments or in growing personal relationships. That makes me smile because I think in today's world, we uh, tend to shy away from criticism and criticism directed to you from your close friends, confidant, business mentors, people like that is a gift. Um, if it's from uh, Joe Bob 69 on uh, Instagram, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <on> Twitter, <laughs> I with, no, that. <laughs> yeah, with no profile pic, uh, maybe not. But uh, no, I still think that most people shy away from it when it's from people that really genuinely care. So I appreciate that, that advice there. Right. Our third one is, what are you most proud of in your life? You know, Matt, I, um, I'm, I'm really proud of, of, of what I've been able to build um, with, my, with my real estate coaching program. And, and I'll tell you why. And it has nothing to do with dollars and cents. It has everything to do with the ability uh, to, to create a massive, massive network of investors who are putting less fortunate people into beautiful homes. Very rarely do you get to be a part of something where everybody wins, especially in business. And usually someone's getting the short end of the stick. In order for you to make a lot of money, sometimes someone's getting, you know, getting an unfair deal. With Section 8 and with my program, I'm taking investors from all over the world. I have clients in, in, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Turkey, uh, Israel, uh, London, China, Japan, Korea, Mexico, Canada, and of course the United States. And all of these people, no matter where they live, are investing in markets where there are tens of thousands of people who are homeless, who are living in housing projects with children in very, very violent places, very unsafe whether it's women who are trying to get away from, from abusive spouses or whether it's kids who don't have shoes on their feet. And we're putting them into homes 
that are beautiful because we have these high standards and we care about human beings. Um, and I don't realize it all the time because I'm, I'm on the phone with clients and we're doing deals and we're doing this, but every week, every two weeks, I get to these markets and I get my hands on these units that people are building and I get to meet tenants and I get to hear stories. And I, I'll be honest with you. A lot of times when I go and look at what we're building and what we're doing, I go with these, uh, with my team. So a lot of times I'm with uh, my contractors and I'm with um, some of my assistants and we're walking through these houses and these are grown men that will go out and leave crying, you know, because they're hearing these stories of just awful, awful misfortune and people that are just so, just got dealt such a bad hand. And to be honest with you, Matt, growing up, uh, I, I grew up in, a, in, a, in an affluent community went to a very affluent uh, uh, private school in, in high school, uh, went to a, a top college in the world. Um, and I was always of the thinking that you can work hard and get out of any situation. And then as soon as I started investing in Section 8, I realized that that was such a load of crap. And you start going to these areas and you look around and you just say, how are you ever supposed to get out of this? Mm-hmm. The cycle of poverty, the lack of jobs, um, the, the, the just the, the, a lot of these administrations just not caring. They just forget. This is such a, a group that people don't care about. So having the ability to get back to your original question, to have a direct impact and to give back, but also make sure that my clients can make money while also somebody gets a beautiful home that they don't have to pay for. It's, it's just an incredible, um, it's an incredible gift that, that I don't take for granted. All right, fine. Where do I swipe my credit card? (laughs) No, I, uh, I, I smile, but I mean, I grew up in one of those communities, right? I grew up in a really small town, um, in rural Appalachia that has been, uh, left behind from the coal mining generation of what built the town. And, uh, it is true. Like you just kind of get stuck in a cycle and, and look, there's a lot of things that you can, uh, work your way out of. And there's a lot of things that you can't. And my, one of my parents, when I was a kid made me go volunteer at a food kitchen to help me realize that. I mean, my dad was a decent entrepreneur. My mom had her PhD. So like we weren't um, poor, we definitely weren't wealthy, but we weren't poor and uh, getting to experience what that was like in some of those food kitchens and hearing some of those stories. Yeah. You just hear medical debt, uh, somebody had cancer, had to take them to the hospital. It was more important than going to the job at that day and those sorts of things that it's just tough. So kudos to you and the team there. Our fourth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? That is a good question. I think, you know, I love history. I'm a big history guy. So I think if I could sit down and have ice cream with anybody, I think it would be Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Uh, I, I'm a big history guy. I'm a big Civil War guy. Um, and, and I think being able to sit down and, and just hear about uh, some of the decisions that guy made and why and, and, and getting into his head, I think that would be the coolest thing ever. Um, shockingly, not mentioned very often in that question. Yeah. So, uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rhett, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, get connected, get a part of the coaching program, or just learn more about what you got going on, where are the best places we can point them? 
Yeah, so Matt, uh, my YouTube channel, uh, it would be the best place. It's, it's uh, Rhett Wiseman, the Section 8 guy. Um, my email's all over that page on every video, and, and I would tell everybody if, if this is something they want to get into and do it the right way um, to send me an email over there. Perfect. We will link those in the show notes. And then, Rhett, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.